Welcome to the Fish Tea Podcast, where we talk about LGBTQ politics, pop culture, growing up in the Caribbean, life in the diaspora, and the work it takes to sustain love, life, and laughter in the midst of all the white noise. I'm M. And I'm Glenn. We're giving you everything, honey. Get into this mug. We're serving you a hot cup of fish tea. Bottoms up. up. Hi, baby. So, all right. We know the people them can't see up on the podcast, but you tell Mary that you have a good faith again. May I say I put up some art girl posts for your Instagram, some Ben food posts for your Instagram. So the people yeah. with you. I've had some questions thrown my way. with you. What's happening? My channel me in a pump with say art girl some so we don't shout or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I've just I've just been um enjoying this Pride weekend, even though there's not much activity going on where I'm at. So it's um the Pride March is happening down in New York City today, but that's too far for me. So um on Thursday, uh we started to watch RuPaul's Drag Race All Star Six. Um it's like a watch party with one of my friends that I met here. And um wait, hold on. They, friends? Yes, Lenray, at some point me I forgot to get friends. Uh-huh. Can, they are lonely all the time, so I have nobody for the nothing weird. They can't they can't have housemates and classmates, friends. Yeah, they, I met them, I met all of them through class. So it's not like whatever. Don't worry, when I get up into Syracuse, we will see what is what. <laughs> you can't vet them when you come. Who is um, your friend? And then, um, so on, it start, I started on Friday, um, this bar that I usually chill out at, they had a screening for Paris is Burning. Um, that was cute. You know, they had drag performances, like, during um, the screening, but, like, the Vogue section, they had somebody perform Vogue um, while it was happening. That was the first night. And then last night, I actually went to a club. I bar hopped last night and I lived. My feet are killing me. <laughs> what kind of club? Uh, yeah. What kind of club? One, one gay club. Yeah, we know one gay club, but what kind of gay club? We know what kind of gay club. Tell me, what kind of gay club? Do you want to play music and people dance? I'm going to let them eat their pantry dance floor. <laughs> Not only that, them do okay. All right, got it, got it, got it. I mean, of course, usual bump and grind and flirt and uh, stuff. I forgot, it wouldn't be a proper queer bar if it all of that never happened. But uh, and then I went to brunch today because uh, I was feeling cute. Okay, so. all right, not bad. Okay, so so this so basically, you you on break, so yeah, enjoy life. Yeah, because um, so I remember the wedding that I've been telling you about, that's happening uh, next week. So mm-hmm. I'm leaving Syracuse on Friday. So I'm just, I'm just enjoy myself a little bit. As I'm going to go down to my cousin, then I just like be at work to make sure that everything's good. Okay. So for me, uh, I think this week has been productive. Um, Matt try to get everything in order. By the way, no, before we do this, big up the team. Big up to the team. The team been not going with themselves from the other day. I'm gonna have a big them up a car. We meet, let's see, I think Thursday especially, we meet mostly with police, we meet with private sector and do one run one sensitization session. We do one one eat one teaching with the um people from the US embassy, like a bag of things that happen. Um them do some extra conflict resolution training and public um, speaking trainings with the community. They might go on with themselves. I mean, they have to just stop and say, big up on myself, or I go on. So yeah, may I big up the team again? They might fire, I'm a proud of them, I'm all of them, some of them, just that. Also, some of the money I like to go come in, so you know, yeah, big up that. Yeah. <laughs> let them keep me around for so big the local money and so. So yeah, I'm a little productive week, man. I'm not saying that I'm just go for mommy and get the food. They kind of upset me because usually the food is already already, and then they're already the food like um a little bit before curfew. And I don't know if you're right, mommy said, but make sure you don't eat the food till it um give look a type of steam in other bowls. I mean, I really think that right. Cause mommy know what time is curfew, right? But yeah, 
Things good, mama did a fast with poor look in the car because him not do, him must never get a good grade now one want this. And I said, mommy, good grief. Him have whole heap of time. Mind you, Nikar is carried one. Da, 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 ba, 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 Nikar is about eight. Oh, oh, shoot. I'm having my birthday shoot the same time as his birthday. So I'm actually need to get him something for the Saturday, Sunday after. All right. Never, but just remember something. <laughs> so, because um, me and him born in July. Um, so, yeah. She's just so poor Nikar. And he's, he's real sensitive. He's not like me and Nicholas. Like, me and Nicholas are mommy dark side, right? When mm-hmm. I so speak of a woman, Nikar is a nice, soft, sensitive one. She's not from she She's not in Brooklyn to play, and she's a critic segment. No, that's for sure. But yeah, I have to get everybody up there so in line because from the other day, the girls up on my house now get in line. So I decide to say, and some of the time, I can go up there and get everybody in line and put everybody on notice. But enough of that. Um, so today, we're having um, another one of our Legends Ball episodes with um, a, who would I describe it? Oh my gosh. I think a fountain of knowledge that I had the good fortune to meet um, when I was in Amsterdam and um, stayed connected with while I was living in the UK, um, the wonderful Mark Thompson. Um, he in the one bag of things, right? In, in, in like, in of the love tank. He, he used to work with Prepster. I don't think he works with Prepster anymore. Um, but he also does work um, with, um, what was the name of the lessons in the, right, I'm just going to mess it up. But Mark is a brilliant black gay activist working in um, the UK now, been there on, they teach the children. Um, and I remember it specifically, um, gave me a tour of Black Queer Life um, in Brixton and what that was like back in the day. And I remember I was fortunate enough to celebrate his 50th birthday while I was in the UK. Um, so welcome to the podcast, Mark. <laughs> hey, baby. Good to be here. <laughs> it's nice to be here and connect with you. Yeah, I still work for Prepster. Prepster is part of Love Tag. Oh, but yeah. Good stuff. It's um, one of our projects. For those who don't know, Mark have big daddy vibes, right? So just throwing that out there as well. Um, he got, you know, if you're single, but you know what you did sing, but Mark have big daddy vibes. Always has, always will have big daddy vibes. That's a picture of him um, in this article um, documenting his youth when he was young. And he did cute for a long time and he stayed cute. You know, that black don't cry, <laughs> that kind of vibe. <laughs> I'm a Jamaican man, of course I'm cute. <laughs> so it's lovely to be here with you both though it's really nice yeah okay mark um so just to kick things off um so your story is often framed from um you know you found out you were positive um when you were 17 in the night in the early 90s but I, I want to kind of backtrack a little Talk to us about um, who you were before that, what life was like growing up as a black, young, queer boy um, in London at that time, uh, um, and the relationships that you had with your family prior to your diagnosis. So, I mean, it's really nice to be asked that, actually, to jump off from there. So I was born in Brixton. My parents are Jamaican, and they came here in the mid sixties, my grandparents were what you call, you know, the Windrush generation. They left Jamaica in the fifties and my parents soon followed. And my mom and dad had me when I was, when they were both really, really young. So I was raised by really young parents. They weren't liberal, but they were really cool, really laid back. Um, we had lots of rasters around our house when I was a kid, reasoning, bunning weed. It was a real kind of laid back, easy household but with a really strong Jamaican West Indian tradition to it. So, you know, I couldn't speak back to my parents, but I could ask questions, right? And we weren't religious because my parents weren't too much into that. So there was a certain freedom that I had as a young kid. And when I found out that I, well, not to found out, but when I started to understand my sexuality and my gayness, I was about 12, 13, 
Um, and I think I struggled like a lot of boys because this is the early 80s. The only imagery that I had or thought about as a young gay man was isolation, loneliness, suicide, blackmail, all of these terrible outcomes. I knew that there were other gay men. I didn't know there were other black gay men at all. But I grew up in a really loving, warm household. My dad was difficult. He was a Jamaican man, you know, of a certain age and certain generation. But they were both really warm and loving and caring and gave me a lot of strength and a good vision in the world. Okay. All right. Actually, I've never asked that question, and I'm glad I did, because, you know, um, kind of give you that kind of grounding. Um, so, so talk to us about your first love. Let me, let, let me dig into that a little bit before we get to the meat of the matter. I'm like, fasten up people business answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I came out when I was 16. You know, my, my mom accepted it, and, you know, I kind of just, I was a, I was a curious kid, right? I was that boy that liked boys and I wasn't afraid to like boys and I like sex with boys. And so I wasn't afraid of that. So I was exploring, but I didn't know where to meet men at all. But when I finally found men, I dated a few guys, but my first, first love was when I was 21 and he was an American guy. And I dated boys before that, but he was the person that really rocked my world because we were a good fit. You know, he was a couple of years older than me. We liked the same things. He was a black guy. Um, and we were both interested in the world. So it just fit perfectly. Okay. So what's your time? <laughs> it hasn't changed over the years, I can tell you that. I mean, my boyfriends could all look like brothers, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, they tend to, yeah. Okay. All right. So so let me then ask the the question that you usually ask. So at 17, um, you find out that you are positive. Um, What was that like? Um, and, And talk to us about what that was like in terms of the, the experiences of the people that you've, yeah, talk to us about how you felt, but also talk to us about what it meant for the relationships, both familial and within the gay community that you would then go on to form, you know, um, and whether or not disclosure became something that was important to you or not. That's, that's a great question. It, you know, for me, as I've said countless times, you know, um, it, was, it was really tough. It was soul-destroying. It was frightening. As anybody who is diagnosed with HIV will have experienced, or any long-term condition, right? It's frightening, it's shocking, it's all of those things that one can imagine. For me, with with relationships and family, I was very, very fortunate that my my mum was accepting straight away. So it made me. It didn't make it. It wasn't easy to tell her, but once I did, and the reaction I got was brilliant. Now with the gay community that I was part of at the time, it was very small. We have to put it in the context of that there was a lot of fear and Queen's gossip anyway. So when you have those three things, it's a dangerous mix. And we were all very young. So I told one or two people who then told people who then told people. So it became a kind of a gossip thing. And I felt that that my story had been taken out of my hands. So for a while there, I didn't tell anybody and I lived in the space of being really, really frightened. So I understand when you've got a secret and even if you're not ashamed of that secret, that secret's about your identity, your sexuality, your your condition. You're not ashamed of it, but you're so frightened of what the world will do to you if they find out that you hold it in. And I went through a lot of that, but I also went through a lot of anger because people knew about my status without me telling them. So that was taken away from me. So disclosure was a really complicated thing because on one hand, I wanted to tell people because I knew there was nothing wrong with me. On the other hand, I didn't because I couldn't trust people. Mm. So it's a really real conflict. And it took me a long time to get to a point where 
disclosure became a very, very different thing. And it's been a journey and it continues to be. Um, yeah, um, I'm just curious about um, what it was like in, in Britain at that time um, when you found out you were positive. So because we, we get a lot of information on um, HIV, the HIV pandemic um, during the 80s and 90s from the US, you know, so we have a pretty good idea of how it was for Black queer people um, in America. But what was it like um, in Britain? Well, you know, I mean, it was, it was exactly, it was, it was almost as similar, just a smaller version. You know, we were seeing the same worry we were seeing, but I think that the difference was here was that we had a media that was rapidly homophobic, rapidly HR, with HIV stigma and horror stories every day. So for the wider, say, white gay community, you could see illness, it was visible. Right. People, you, you could see HIV for the black queer community, like in many places, it was invisible. So you didn't know lots of people. I speak to friends who tell me stories of people they knew who would just suddenly disappear that you wouldn't see again. And you would assume that they had died. I know friends who looked after people because nobody would take them in. Nobody would care for them. And we're not just talking about their families. We're talking about the queer community as well. So people were rejecting people left, right and centre. But there was also a lot of love and support and caring. And the communities did come together at some level. But it was incredibly complex. So what was access to healthcare like? So now we live in a modern era where, you know, you do your, 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 test, your, your test and treat. Um, which you found that your positive started almost immediately on your, um, your antiretroviral therapy. But what was it like back then, um, you know, accessing care, what care existed? Um, and what was it like navigating healthcare spaces? Well, you know, because we've got the NHS in England, um, healthcare was free. So that automatically made it a lot easier. So you're entitled to healthcare. Because HIV was a sexually transmitted infection primarily in the UK at that time or intravenous drug users at those early stages, it was very often diagnosed in sexual health clinics, not in mainstream clinics. So those clinicians and those doctors were really quickly attuned to dealing with the issue of gay, particularly gay men's sexual health at the time. So some of the homophobia that one might have expected was slightly less so. But because HIV was such a frightening thing and we knew so, so little about it, that within general healthcare, that's where one might have had problems or faced barriers and even more stigma. But we were really fortunate that the activist community in this country got its act together pretty bloody quickly. But then the medical professions here as well were very often young, very often really fiery, people who were interested in doing good for people. So when those two met, we were able to then challenge the National Health Service and say, you need to do better. But as you would have seen in stories like Pose and It's a Sin, where um, patients with HIV and AIDS were treated appallingly on wards, that still happened in this country, particularly in the early days. But because of activists and people with AIDS themselves pushing back, that changed the narrative. But healthcare in this country, I mean, I'm very proud of the fact as a positive man, I've been able to take benefits of the National Health Service here. I have had the best treatment, which is free and available. But that's also because we pay for it and my grandparents worked to build it. So I bloody well deserve it, didn't I? That's right. <laughs> that is right. <laughs> Micro reparations, baby. Micro reparations. Get them where you can. Right. So... What I would be interested in hearing um, quickly is um, what, what, how did race impact any of that, if at all? So you're saying, you know, it was free and you were able to access it. But, but, but what did your, you know, your intersectional identity as being both black and gay, um, how did that impact, if any at all, your experience in just accessing um, healthcare at that time while living with HIV? 
you know, the language that we use today, like intersectionality and those things, that, that didn't exist at the time. So I wasn't thinking about my intersections then. I'm reflecting on it now. Within a healthcare setting, there were no issues at all. I didn't feel that there were particular needs. And I think I also have to put it in the context. You can hear the way that I speak, right? I have very strong South London British accent. I'm light-skinned as well. I was smooth when I was a kid. So all of these things make it slightly more acceptable when I walk into a healthcare setting. I'm a young gay man. So there's all of these things which make it easier for me. If I was um, a Carib, you know, if I was a man who migrated directly from Jamaica or from Uganda or if I was a black African woman, it would have been very, very different. Where some of my intersections did come into play was when I went into spaces outside of the National Health Service, so your NGOs. So when I would go to a HIV service centre, I would very often be the only black man there. I would be the only young man there, the only man who was well. So it made me feel, it was, it was jarring. And I could sense when I walked in that thing of, oh, what's he doing here? Does he belong? Who is he? Where, and I never had to prove that I was a positive man, but there was this sense of one didn't belong. And that was part of my motivation for going and finding my tribe and building my own things. Because it wasn't that these spaces were bad, but they didn't meet all of my 360 degree needs as a young black queer man at that time. Amy had a question? Um, no, I'm not sure if we've finished with these things. I don't want to jump the gun. But I had a question about um, just what life has, well, we spoke about what life was prior to um, the diagnosis, um, but what, like, what were the major shifts in, in, in how you looked at things, how you approach life afterwards? Um, I, I, I lost hope. I, I lost all sense of a future. Um, I lost my dreams and aspirations. There were things that I was determined to do, like go to university, travel to the US, um, have children. Even as a gay man, I knew I was going to be a dad. And then all of those things over time were just, well, some of them immediately were taken away and some of them over time eroded away. Um, it affected my trust in people. And I became very, very angry with my black queer community for many, many years because I didn't feel loved, supported or held by them at the time. And I think that I say that because I know it's a deeply personal thing, but I think we do that to each other, you know, because of the hurt and the fear and the pain in the wider world that is inflicted, we internalize it and we could be pretty shit to each other sometimes. And I, feel sometimes that I was a recipient of that. So those are the things for a little while, but after time I failed stuff and I healed and I got over it and I did good shit. <laughs> and I still fight for the, and I still fight for the blacks and the gays. <laughs> so, so we're going to get to your community building work, um, which has been amazing, but I, but I know you spent some time um, in New York. Um, I don't know if you, you lived in New York or you had just been there for... I lived, I actually lived in... I, I spent some time in New York, but I was mainly living in the South, in Virginia. Oh, so yeah. So I wanted to hear about that. Like, so, you know, you're living in the UK, you had the benefit of the NHS. Um, talk to us about what being in the US space, and we know how their health system works, uh, and what that was like for the period that you were there. I went there in 1993, chasing love. Um, I, I specifically went out there to be with my man. You know, I was packing up. And I was like, come on, let's just do this. And it didn't work out. But that's fine. You know, that's life. That's what we do. I was 24 at the time. So when you're 24 and, you know, you're in love, you do that kind of thing. Um, but I was in the South. I was in Virginia. And so I wasn't in a big city. And for me, what was enlightening were a couple of things. Was the segregation of black communities and white communities. And when I'd been in London, I knew it had been segregated in terms of our queer communities, but I'd never been in a space which was so segregated. The second thing 
which then started to spur me with my work was it was the first time I'd seen HIV positive black gay men with full blown AIDS. And I saw them in numbers, not just one. I saw them in numbers. And when you hear this, when you look at what's going on in the, the American South now about HIV amongst black gay men, and this is 1993, you're thinking 27 years later, this hasn't changed. So that was a real awakening for me as well. So even when I was in the US and I was going there chasing love, there were things that were happening in, in our world, which were then, and the other thing which happened on that trip is that we did a road trip from Virginia to San Francisco. We drove um, there, drove across the States, one of my most memorable things that happened. And we got to San Francisco, the Castro. And I'd gone there as a young queer man going, right, it's San Francisco. This is where we go. You go to New York and you go to San Francisco. And I went to the Castro and it was like a wake. It was the, the end of days because the epidemic had torn it apart. So all of these things are kind of bubbling around in my world when I'm in the States in the early 90s. Wow. So, so then, and I know I have a lot of questions, but because as I said, for me, you're, you're, you're just like a fountain of knowledge. Um, I, I, I think to, and you mentioned Pose before, and I wondered, um, so that shows an example of the kind of representation of the epidemic at the time, how um, real, um, how representative do you think it was, in, it, I mean, we know there were some parts that were very fanciful, but um, how, how well do you think it represented just the reality of what it meant to be positive during that time? Um, I think it reflects it well. You know, I, I think it, it, it does it pretty well. You know, it shows the fear and the concern, but it also shows community rallying around and acting and being activists and looking after each other and loving each other. I think it, it definitely does. I think what's interesting about Pose is that I came of age when Paris is Burning was released, mm -hmm. right? So I'm like 2021 when Paris is Burning first comes out and me as a young black queer man, I react to Paris is Burning the way that kids watch Pose today and they go, oh my God, I'm being seen for the first time. And so when I look at Paris's, when I look at Pose through the lens of Paris's burning, I'm like, oh yeah, you got it right. That's what our lives were like. Because Paris's burning influenced my generation of young black queer men in Britain to, to start voguing, to start saying, ooh, cha, woo, girl, all of that stuff. We started in 91 when we saw Paris's burning. So when we see Pose today, yes, it's a good reflection of the time then. But see, that's good to hear because you see, I mean, for me, well, one, everybody in my, um, and I have my own chosen family, I'm modeled after that, you know, the whole system there. And I force them to watch Paris is Burning. That it's a requirement. You have to mm -hmm. watch it because I'm like, you have to know your history. You have to know your history. You have to know what things are like. Because even though in Jamaica, we don't necessarily have um, those, the kind of, mirroring of situations that we don't necessarily have um, those exact um, situations. We do have a lot of parallels. And of course, yeah. uh, through the benefit of now, persons are doing the work of going through the archives. We're seeing, um, you know, what was happening at the time. And I feel like it's so important to watch, you know, watch what was happening then and, and kind of understand the ways in which Black queer people were and queer people of color were you know, surviving and, and, and making and thriving and making their own spaces, um, even while being on the margins. And it's just great to hear that. Um, and I thought Pose did a decent enough job of, of kind of representing what I, you know, saw in Paris is Burning. So it's mm. kind of good to hear that, you know, you would have, you know, been around when Paris is Burning launched and have lived through that, would be able to say, okay, they, they, they did it justice because um, there were just definitely like moments in pose where I felt it. Um, I, I felt what it meant for communities to just go through the trauma of loss, whether it was when Candy died, whether it was, you know, Pretel and Ricky's 
breakup, you know, there were those, just those moments um, that you felt like, I know those people, I've met those people, um, I've seen their arguments, it's not the cutest, um, but, you know, and it's, it's good to kind of hear that coming from you. Um, I think what it does, I think what, what you've kind of just highlighted there is that it takes, what it does well is it takes our story and our experience as black, black queer people and it puts in a particular milieu and setting, right? And because it's working class and it's trans and it's non-binary and it's, it's, it's cut and paste and it's a little bit bashment, then it, it speaks to more of us. Yeah. Whereas something like Noah's Ark does a very similar thing, but it's middle class, it's LA, it's aspirational. So you can buy in it to it up to a point, right. but pose, pose is dirty. It scrubs it. So whether you are a gully queen, whether you are a rude boy in Brixton, whether you're a bougie queen that lives in New York, there's a little bit of it you can go, yeah, that that's that's my experience. And I think that's works. It it touches, it touches us. So in moments of I'm like, no, nah, I don't get that. But it, what it also does is it shows that the diaspora is connected. There yeah. are things that so we've all got even if we don't name it the house of. Even if we don't say, oh, it's mother, there is always a head, there is always the children, you know, there is always a clique and a gang. You know what I mean? That's what we do because we've got to look after each other. We, we have those chosen families, you know, so it's, it's good. It's, that's a very interesting um, comparison that you've made and very spot on comparison that you made of, you know, Pose versus Noah's Ark. And, I, I, and I've always just loved Noah's Ark for what they gave us. I always told people, mm. Because it's black gay sex in the city. I've always said that. Um, and but I, I, that that's a very also very lovely comparison when you think about it. And and then it comes to my frustration, which is sometimes I wonder if um, when it comes to our stories, they just don't get to go on. And, and granted, I'm not necessarily interested in 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 following a, a show for like 19 seasons like Grey's Anatomy, <laughs> but. You know, it just seems like our shows, the shows that center us, and I feel like I can't really think of them. I know there are some others because, I mean, there's Legendary now, um, which is a competition which is slightly different. It's not, it, it, it's, it's a storytelling in a different kind of way because it's a reality show, a competition show. Um, but it seems like those kinds of shows just don't get the benefit of reasonable longevity, you know? Um, so it's almost like, if you were around when Noah's Ark was on TV, then yeah, you had that moment. If you were around mm. when Paris is Burning came out, you had that moment. If you were around when Pose is on, you have this moment, but we don't have the longevity. And even as I appreciate shows like that, you know, integrate queer characters and black queer characters in different ways, like sex education, mm. we can tell that it's, it, it, it's, it, it's a story about with a black queer character. It's not a story about black queer characters. Mm. And it seems that we just don't get to have those stories a lot. And that's just my frustration. I was wondering how you felt about that. I mean, you know, it's, I, I agree with you. I do. It's a slow road. It's a slow road, but it, is, it, it has blown up. I mean, there are, it's, it's an interesting one, right? Because on one hand, we want our own stories and we want longevity, but we also want to be in those soap operas and the sci-fi dramas around every week, just as your regular character who just happens to be queer, right? Or just happens to be a person of colour. You're like, oh, that non-binary person just happened to walk past me. I didn't even know. We want all of those sorts of things, right? So I'm not sure. I think that right now we want stuff, we want it really quickly. Mm-hmm. But what I would say to is it's about us making and writing those stories. We have to write them. Right. We have to be the authors of those narratives, right? So whilst Ryan Murphy can be a great showrunner behind Pose, it takes Janet Mock to take it to a whole nother level, right? Absolutely. So this is what we need to do. So we need to kick down the doors. So for example, With It's a Sin, the TV show that was here about the AIDS epidemic, there were lots of people who critiqued it and were going, well, why weren't there more of this? Why weren't there more of that? And I said, my response to that, it's a white gay man that wrote it. 
I don't expect him to write a nuanced black queer character. But what I want now is for a young black man to go, Mark, let's write that story about the AIDS epidemic in the UK from a black queer perspective. Mm. That's what we do. Right. Oh, by the way, and this is just my last, this is just the last question about TV. Um, and I might have a question. Um, have you seen P-Valley? No. You, well, Uncle Clifford in P-Valley. There's this, there's this black queer character in P-Valley called Uncle Clifford. I, like, I plan to do a, when I have time, because I have a lot of my people, when I have time, I really plan to do a presentation or something that documents all of what you just said, which is all the ways in which you've shown up in film, because it's been so spotty and all over the place, but trust me, Uncle Clifford, I want... So P-Valley is a, is a story about a strip club. I think it's in Louisiana. It's kind of going under. And the owner of the strip club is a non-binary um, black queer person who is just, just ostentatious in the, in the most amazing ways. Um, and so I just love seeing, um, it's played by Nico Anand, and it's just, it's just amazing to see how his story and then the story of the relationship that he develops with this deal rapper is just weaved into it. Um, even while the, it follows the lives of the stripper, the, the strippers themselves and the different difficulties that they go through. Um, this, I think season one was really good and I hope to see where it goes, but yeah, I just wanted to- I'll look for that. Yeah, but- I'll check it out. You are good. You absolutely should. Um, any questions <laughs> from you, M? No. Um, let's talk about the work. Okay. So you so that so so yeah, that's the question. So you'd have seen um, what's been happening, particularly in the US, and lots of black gay men um, with um, full blown AIDS, and you're now back in the UK. So is it, was that the spark or were there other things that sparked you into the, the activism and the advocacy that you ended up, you're now doing? And then you can all just talk to us about that activism and advocacy. Let me just switch on the light, hold on a minute. Sorry. Um, yes, I came back and um, it was a little bit of, it was a little bit of, I needed to work and an opportunity presented itself. Um, but first of all, I, I think I was just getting really tired of the way that it made me feel. Inaction made me feel. And I was asked to run some safer sex workshops for black gay men. And it just felt, okay, this is an interesting topic. It's sexy. It's fun. And that's how I fell into it. But when I started to do the work, I realized that there was even more of a need in this country because there were such low levels of knowledge. There was really high levels of fear, which comes from a lack of knowledge and a lack of information. And I also saw that the white organizations that did exist were not doing anything that spoke to us. You know, there was campaigns happening, there was outreach happening, but none of it was targeting black gay men. Okay. Hmm. Okay. So talk to us then about our, I would ask this question. Uh, what are some of the issues that, what are some of the ways in which based on the work that you've done, um, things have changed and things have remained the same for black gay men in, in the UK? Oh, wow. I think at a structural level within the system, because of the work that I've done, that we have, and I, I, it's a phrase I don't like using, but I'll use it for the sake of it. We have a seat at the table. So within, and not just me, but there are other black gay men like Professor Kevin Fenton, for example, you know, who is really senior now, started out in HIV and sexual health medicine in this country. But because of men like us, constantly talking and pushing for black gay men's health within the healthcare system, within to funders, 
I can talk to other community organizations, NGOs, and go, you should be doing more for black amen. But the real conversation happened when I was speaking to primary healthcare practitioners, when I was speaking to commissioners, when I would speak to politicians, because I slowly worked my way through the food chain of activism and worked in organizations, I was soon being invited to sit at a political table. So that gives me an opportunity to then say, right, black gay men, we're disproportionately affected. We are this, we are that. So I think we now in this country talk about queer men of color and our needs. And that, and, and within that, what does it need for migrant men? What does it need for men whose first language isn't English? And I think that the work I've done has played a part in that happening because I've constantly pushed for us to be seen in there. So what was um, what was the reception like um, when you started to, you know, to bring more attention to to what um, black queer men were going through? Because you know there was already this the the space, um, the activist space, but that was centered around white or yeah white queer men. So did you like get any pushback? or any sort of attempts at invalidating what you were trying to do? What was that? I mean, there's a couple of, there's a, there's a couple of things that, that happen. Is that, first of all, we, we look back and we say that these organizations of this work was doing this work centered around white gay men. That's not, that's not quite true. What they were doing was just centering it around gay men, but not thinking that gay men were, we were all one monolith. So there was no difference, right? And so they therefore weren't thinking about, so we spoke, for example, I remember one time there was a conversation we had with an organization that was doing work specifically named for gay men. And they were talking about migration across the UK and how so many men leave their hometowns and come to London, you know, it's the big city and how difficult it is for them. And then we're going, but actually as black queer men, we're not moving from anywhere. We live in London, right? We live in these big cities. And when we do move, our needs are really different. So this is an early example of them not thinking about the intersections of, of, of what we did. Um, I think the second thing that we did, we didn't get invalidated. It was this thing of present the evidence, show me the data, show me the cold hearth science that this is a fact. And then we were going, but you haven't collected the data. We don't engage in your surveys. You don't ask the right questions. You send the wrong people to ask the questions. So you can't ask for evidence when you set up a system that doesn't invite us to participate in research and evidence. So we had to change that as well. So that is another thing that we ultimately contributed to. Mm, I actually really, I'm really glad that you, you kind of highlighted that last bit because um, I think about all the ways in which just we are invested in just research um, because we recognize that um, we have to always, I think, as you know, when you're doing this kind of work, um, any type of LGBT work, we always have to come from a space of, well, here's, here's the data, here's this, and then you have to um, talk about the validity of the data and mm -hmm. um, the, you have to think through your sample size and all of that, right? Um, how, how easy or difficult was it to get them to the stage where they, where they were taking on your recommendations of collecting the data in the way to get the evidence that you need of the realities that you would have, you, you were already seeing in front of you? You know, we were, you know, we, we were relatively fortunate because some of the researchers that we worked with, again, and this is what the, the epidemic kind of threw up, some of the researchers that we were fortunate, fortunate enough to work with were quite radical themselves. And whilst were academic, were queer and trying to work outside of academic institutions. So working class white men who, you know, didn't go to Oxford and Cambridge, but wanted to have a punk, queer, radical look at research. So we were able quite quickly to start talking about how that should be different. So looking at the opportunities 
for queer men of color to be participants in the research, to become researchers. Then the problem that we had then was that, right, you get that, but then how do we get us, the black queer community, to step up to participate in that research, right? Because, you know, we're private, we're discreet, we don't, you know, all of these factors which don't make it easiest for us to do that. But, you know, it's a slow, it's a slow thing. We've got better. We are getting better. And I think that's because we've got a stronger black queer academic base now. There are more younger people who are working in academia who are going, actually, no, I can do this work. So what has remained the same <clears throat> about black queer organizing? Um, not specifically around HIV and health, but what has remained the same? And, and by the way, just want to, to flag that, you know, being in the UK, and that's why when I say to people that I wouldn't necessarily live in a majority white country, and people always look at me strange. Um, and I was like, well, you know, it was lovely. You know, I, I love the transportation system, but um, finding community there wasn't easy for me. Um, and actually, it was because of the program you guys were running that I was able to find Dale and Isaac and Howard. And we created our own little subgroup and we were going to parties together and stuff like that. And I, you know, I was really grateful for that opportunity because it, it, it built on what I already had, but I do, and I had to look for, you know, a booty once a month to go to. Otherwise I didn't have what I, I have in Jamaica, which is, a space where my, I don't have to try, my race doesn't have to necessarily um, be a point at which you have to of translation, um, as I sometimes would call it. So I was wondering, what is different now about Black queer organizing? Well, well, in that context, it's very, it's very, it's very different. What, what's, what's different or what's the same? Both, I guess. What we gather around now is, is, is very different. You know, there are so many different touch points that it's hard to agree on, on one thing, right? So what are we all trying to be liberated for? You know, is it, is, it, is it black gay men? Is it black trans people? Is it black women? Are black gay men and black women getting on at the moment? You know, what's your definition of blackness? What is your, there, there are all of these things that we would, we, we find really difficult to come to a consensus about and how we get there. And I think because there are so many of us now, it's difficult to organize around that. So we organize around big moments like pride events. So like UK Black Pride, every black person comes and we're all united. And that is a damn beautiful thing. It happens with all of the pride events that we try to bring together. And that's why it's important. But beyond that, we then go, we go our separate ways. There's also something around social justice and civil rights organizing anyway, that it can very much be leader led rather than community led, right? So you have the one person and everybody rallies around that person and they don't do shit. <laughs> Nobody else does anything. So we need more foot soldiers. We need more people doing everyday stuff to build community. So I, I, I speak to people, and one of the things I must call out to younger queer activists is build space. Build space. Be, build, it's difficult, but build physical space. We don't have that. I live in a queer housing cooperative where I am so blessed. You've been here, Glenroy, so blessed to be surrounded by my family. They're not all my chosen family, but they're family nonetheless. So let us look at how we can build and invest in these spaces so that the next generation of young trans and non-binary queer kids have a home to go to. Let's build a space where we can go and we can dance and we own it. I'm not talking about capitalism here. I'm not talking about lining our pockets or getting corporate sponsorship, but let's build stuff that is tangible now. Well, that's actually, um, that's really powerful. And I'm really glad you said that because like I said, the similarities are just 
All right, so uncanny. So you talk about, you know, certain things are just leader-led and they're like, you, the leader, go and you sort this out and then we all come and we'll all enjoy the benefits of that. And me as an activist here, as a queer activist here, it's something that oftentimes bothers me and, 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 and we try to think about, and we invest a lot in, trying to figure out how do we get our community to a point where uh, they do, and it's not that they're not doing things, right? But I feel like what ends up happening is that the community might organize a party and then it becomes a community of a bunch of party promoters. Um, and the, the, those other key things about making a community into a community that can galvanize and mobilize around key issues, it's just not there. And we're, tr we're doing work now to, to, to start investing that one, getting the physical space, but also getting people to be together and, and, and do that part of the work as well. Um, so even this year, we, we, we're doing a, a, an initiative called Pride Share because we want to now make, bring as much hands on deck um, as possible, not just with in the pride committee where you give us ideas for us to execute, but not the starting point is we provide space and you execute, you take control, you do, you come up with your ideas and you're supported to get that done. And I, and, and it's always been a critique that I've had of my own community that sometimes there's this expectancy that one entity or one person will save us. And I, and I don't know that that's how queer organizing anywhere has gotten to where it's got to. That in, in actuality, it's because there were, as you said, many foot soldiers um, working together and pushing together that we've um, gotten the progress that we've got. So I'm just really glad that you said that. Um, there was one last thing that I was, was going to ask about. Oh, well, the point that I was asking about, well, you know, keeping yourself only to black gay men, but maybe M has a, that's a different point altogether. Might be my last question. Uh, but maybe M has a, a question around the work or organizing. Uh, no, um, I had a more, more or less personal question, I guess. Go ahead with it. Yeah. Um, well, no, it's not personal. But um, so you said, you said a lot of great stuff. Um, but what, what would be two of the biggest lessons that you'd say you've learned um, through all of this experience that you've had growing up, um, experiencing what it was like um, for Black queer people in the US, activism, everything? What are two of the biggest lessons? The two biggest lessons? Um, And this is the first one is it isn't easy for everybody and I, and I get that but it's be your and it's a cliche but be your authentic self bring your bring yourself bring yourself my dad was a hardcore jamaican man who didn't give a fuck right would blood clot and rust clot to the cows came home and when i was growing up I used to find him really embarrassing. And I was like, why you got to be like that? Why you got to be all like cussing people? But I now know that my dad was a white, I was a black man living in this racist country. And it was, and he stood up and he was always standing with your head held high and your shoulders back. So always carry that. And even if you can't present it, try to feel it inside. And I think the second thing is work with people that you love. Work with people that you love. Way too often we spend loads of time do, trying to do the work, the people that we think are going to take us on the journey. And I've learned in my life to work with people I love because then that makes the work so much easier. And then if I had a final one, it would be work for the people you, work for the people you love. Mm. There you go. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's deep. That's real deep. I like that. Work with and for the people you love. Yeah, cause trust me, when, when those rough times come, it's being able to kind of trust and in the support that, of that person right beside you 
that's going to get you through. And so my last question is because I remember we had this conversation briefly while I was in the UK um, about just, you know, once when you're in that kind of space of being in a majority white country, um, especially based on how representation is now, um, you see a lot of interracial couples, you know, black gay men with um, either, you know, white gay men or men of other races. And so, and you had kind of made the point that throughout your lifetime, you've been able to date exclusively, if I am not correct, if I, if I remember correctly, black gay men. I just wanted to hear about, I just wanted you to just talk about that a little and how you, were, you felt you were able to do that. Well, I think it's the how and is about the want and the desire. That is that is my desire. You know, I, I love and desire other black men like myself. So, you know, there's that and there's a political attraction, but also where I socialize, how I how I've been socialized from a young age. I've been brought up in and around black people who have celebrated black love. You know, um, as I said, I mentioned my dad a few times and he was not a fan of interracial relationships. He comes from a very different generation to me. So that's not it for me, but I, it wasn't political earlier on, but it has been for me because love is political, no matter what anybody says, even if people want to say love is love. But for me, I want to be with another black man because it's about sharing black love and there's nothing more beautiful than that for all the reasons I've said countless times before, you know, because we're taught not to love each other as black people, as black queer people. We're taught wherever we're from, wherever we do, this is the one thing we're told we're not meant to have, we're not deserving of. So it's a powerful thing for me, as, a be- as much as it is a beautiful thing. And, and I'm glad you said that because I feel like, and I, I'll say this again, it's about the third or fourth time I say it, I've said it on the podcast and I'm going to say it again. I feel like the subliminal message that they send in the movies is that for Black men to be happy for black gay men to find love, they have to be, find it outside of their race. And that's a difficulty I have. And uh, I'm just wondering if I'm reading into it too much or those are thoughts as well. I just feel like that's what they low-key tell us. I don't think it's, you know, I think if it was that deep, if it was really that deep, I'm sure that they, I think it's more about the fact that whiteness has to be injected into everything. It has to be present. For white, so so you can have Noah's Ark, which is all about black love. We've spoken about this. We've spoken about Pose. It's all about blackness. It's not a, Pose is successful, right? But something like Noah's Ark becomes a black love story. You put a white man in there, it's a gay love story. You mm-hmm. see a commercial, and it's a mixed race couple. Oh, well, white men will buy that. It's a black gay couple. Oh, that's not us. So white is about whiteness always having to be present to be acceptable. But then there does become another message to young black gay men, to young queer, sorry, to young queer people, that this is what you should aspire to. This is the love that you mean. Then it also says to our wider community who want any excuse to go that homosexuality isn't part of our culture, to go, see, I told you, it's our white man ting. Right. So it's all of these things that it sends messages to. But if you look at commercials in the UK where there are couples, nine times out of 10, it's an interracial couple, regardless of sexuality or gender, because whiteness has to be present. But then that's snowballed. But I think what worries me, Glenroy, is that when I see and people can love who they want. And I have to preface that. But when I see this just kind of explosion, do you know what I mean? Of, you know, this is, this is all that's left for me. Mm. Black men are trouble, they're hard work. Black relationships are difficult. No, they're not. All relationships are difficult. Love is work. And if you think love with a white man is easy or easier than a black man. <laughs> answers on the postcard. <laughs> Uh, oh gosh so I think we probably passed the hour um, but I really just yeah. want to 
Thank you so, so much, Mark, for agreeing to come on the podcast. And as usual, sharing your wealth of knowledge and experience about love, activism, you know, being positive and, and then living with HIV throughout a time when there was a lot of fear and stigma and how all of your experiences kind of led you to be, I think, the amazing community builder that you are. Um, so I, I, um, you inspire me with the work that you do um, in the UK. So I just want to thank you for that. And just thank you for extending the, the hand you did while I was in, um, in Amsterdam so that I met you and I had a much better time in the UK than I otherwise would <laughs> If I hang oh, <laughs> so thank oh, you so much. Um, oh, good. So, um, listeners, we hope you were as you know edified and enjoyed the conversation conversation as much as I did. As usual, you can send us your feedback at Fish Team Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. You can always email us your feedback, fishteakpodcast at gmail.com. Remember to like, share, subscribe, um, rate, leave us a comment. Uh, also, still in COVID, and if you're in the UK, Delta variant, so social distance, mask up. If you're going to get your joke already, take your joke. As I said, we're going to joke already, so I'm not going to get the next joke. Um, wipe it down before we put it down the mouth, right? Um, and as I always say, Stay sophisticated. Bye. Bye.